So we'll dive straight into introducing our speaker. There are two ways to introduce speakers. One, and the most common way, is through uh, uh, their achievements. Another way is to introduce the man. Our speaker, Mr. Wiley, has many achievements. He has written uh, for many uh, magazines and uh, has written some books. But I think we get to know him a little bit better from his own description of himself. He describes his childhood as something out of a story by Roald Dahl, um, <laughs> which could lead to all sorts of possibilities. Um, it was full of vacancies like AWOL parents and school truancy. He was a ward of state for a time, and he hated the eighth grade so much that he took it twice. <laughs> That's when I read that line that I liked him the most. I took 12th grade twice, I liked it so much. This combination of homelessness and imagination goes a long way to, to explaining why he writes the things he writes. Everything from his writing on the recovery of the traditional household to the fantasy and science fiction stories he has published. He's been happily married for over 30 years. He has three grown children, and he is a pastor and resides in rural Connecticut, which I'm not sure where that is, but I believe it is in America. <laughs> so I want to, to give you a, ask you to give a very, very warm welcome to Mr. Chris Wiley. I'm honored and uh, very pleased to be with you. The connection to New St. Andrews goes a ways back. Uh, we've had uh, some uh, young people from our church youth group attend the school. Lita Sundet is the daughter of one of my best friends. And uh, Lita was here for years. And uh, I've been able to get to know some people connected to the uh, New St. Andrews community and. Uh, beyond over the years. Peter Escalante and I have known each other for a while online, and now we actually meet. But uh, Peter and I have had a number of really rich conversations. At least I thought they were rich. I don't know if he did. But uh, I'm here today to, sh to share with you uh, a talk that I gave at the Touchstone Conference uh, on the campus of Trinity uh, University in Deerfield, Illinois. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a marvelous event. I was, uh, I was honored to be included with a list of speakers that included Robbie George from Princeton and Tony Esselin, uh, Nancy Piercy. Uh, so it was a, it was a, a marvelous thing. I, I, I think they somehow missed, they didn't realize who I was or am, and I got inserted into this event. But it went really well, and uh, it became the basis for a book. This talk became the basis for a book that's just come out from Canon Press. And it's available now, I believe, and I think I'll be signing copies of it tonight. So if you, you want to see, uh, uh, you know, this theme or this talk uh, developed a bit more, you can uh, read that book. Well, the, uh, the title of this talk is, uh, as you read, uh, 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 this is a talk that has to do with uh, piety and Aeneas and Abram. Let me just go ahead and read it. I uh, was traveling yesterday and didn't arrive here in Moscow until two in the morning. And I usually get up at five. So back home, I arrived at five in the morning. So I was awake 24 hours. I got about four hours sleep last night. 
So I feel like I might be, I used this joke earlier and nobody got it. <laughs> but I, I, feel like, I feel like I might uh, be like Benny Hitler from, New, uh, from Hill Street Blues. I don't know if anybody here is like a fan of Hill Street Blues. But in Hill Street Blues, there's this character named Benny Hitler who refused to change his name because one bad apple should not spoil the bunch. And, uh, but he, he was a narcoleptic comic, which meant he fell asleep on himself in his own stand-up comedy. He was a great comic, but he would just fall asleep standing up. So that may happen. So if that, that happens, just give me a nudge and I'll come back. It's a good thing this is all written down, because if it wasn't, I'd be completely incoherent. So here goes. The word piety appears to have fallen out of circulation. In some circles, the thing that it once referred to is now known as a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm old enough to remember the transition. When I was young, old preachers promoted piety, particularly those whose vocabulary had been formed by reading John Wesley or George Whitfield. I suppose the word sounded sanctimonious to younger men, and that's why they used more youthful-sounding terms such as devotions, or even quiet time, QT for short, you may be able to detect a downgrade here. Piety was something that carried you through life. QT was something for your to-do list. But I think it's safe to say that we arrived, have arrived at a nadir. A few years ago, there was a push to get the last vestiges of sanctimony out of Christianity. I'm thinking of the slogan, Christianity is not a religion, it's a, say that again, <laughs> I miss religion, I miss piety too, I'd like to have them back, once upon a time, a long time ago, piety could have been included in a list of things that made you a manly man, I don't think QT could have made such a list. What I'm thinking of goes much further back than Wesley and Whitfield. Even in the 18th century, piety's sphere had already contracted. Its story, it's a story that I'm sure is familiar to many of you, but I think I can sum it up succinctly. What had once been public truth by the 18th century had been reduced to private conviction. Ecclesial authority had been downgraded by then. Authority in general had devolved to the individual due to revolutions in politics, science, and industry. To meet the challenge, evangelists like Wesley and Whitfield were forced to stress direct, very personal experiences of the supernatural by everyone. Catechisms and confessions were not enough. Then came Romanticism in the 19th century, and before you knew it, we had Cain Ridge. This is a broad, sweeping generalization, I know, but I'm only trying to describe the zeitgeist here, not the path of every leaf on the wind. What we have been left with is heart religion, because now the heart is the only place Jesus can be publicly acknowledged to live. Ironically, many people think that this is the very essence of Christianity. The notion that the faith once stood for more is inconceivable. Now, what does this heart religion look like? When it comes to a personal relationship with Jesus, I think the image that captures best what many have in mind is found in the old song, In the Garden. I know it well. I was a pastor on Cape Cod. I sang it a lot. The Cape is one of those places that people go to die. 
And I buried a lot of folks during my time there. And in the garden, ranked second only to Amazing Grace when it came to most requested songs for funerals. Allow me to sing it to you. Now, I'm not a, a vocalist, so. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear falling on my ear. The Son of God discloses. Now here's the refrain. And it's kind of think about washing machine. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there. I have no clue what this last line means. None other has ever known. Now, I actually do think I know what the last line means, and it's bad. <laughs> there are more verses, but it's the refrain that really sticks with you. I'm sorry, you've got that earworm now. It's just not going to go away. But In the Garden was written by the prolific C. Austin Miles and was, and was originally published in 1913. And I'm told by an apologist for the song that Miles had the encounter between Mary and the risen Lord and John's gospel in mind when he wrote it. And that may be true, but that is not how the song functioned for the people I knew on Cape Cod. They weren't singing about Mary. They were singing about themselves. This never troubled me until I read The American Religion by Yale literary scholar Harold Bloom. It was Bloom that brought the Gnostic undertones of In the Garden to my attention. For Bloom, a self-identified and very serious Gnostic, this was something to celebrate. But even if Bloom overstated his case, there is something languid and silken, even luxuriant about it. It has the air of intimacy. And it reminds me of the bridal mysticism that Lee Pottles criticized in his book, The Church Impotent. Let's contrast in the garden with another image, one found on coins that Jesus and Paul probably held in their hands. There we have a man with an elderly man on his back accompanied by the word pietas the word that is the basis for the English word piety. It wasn't the only image of piety found on Roman coins. One shows a woman holding a baby to her breast. Another shows a woman pouring out a libation, but it is the first image I intend to consider because it performed the same mythic function for Romans that the pilgrim landing at Plymouth Rock once performed for Americans. It's an image of Aeneas fleeing the ruin of, ruin of Troy, carrying his father. Here's the legendary scene as described by Bernard Knox, Director Emeritus of Harvard Center for Hellenistic Studies. Quote, after realizing that the fighting was no longer of use, that Troy was doomed, Aeneas carried his father Anchises on his shoulders out of the burning city, holding his son Ascenius by the hand with his wife Creusa following behind, end of quote. It would be hard to find a more manful image than this. It has the potential of giving a heroic cast even the most routine tasks of domestic life. While we would admire the picture, I don't, while they would admire the picture, I don't think that the old preachers of my youth had something like this in mind when they talked about piety. So what were the Romans thinking of when they called this pietas? Here's Bernard Knox again, quote, the word pius does indeed refer like its English derivation to devotion and duty to the divine. This is the reason cited by Poseidon in the Iliad for saving Aeneas from death at the hands of Achilles. 
And in the Aeneid, he is always mindful of the gods, constant in prayer and thanks and dutiful in sacrifice. But the words pius and pietas have in Latin a wider meaning. Perhaps the best English equivalent is something like dutiful, mindful of one's duty, not only to the gods, but also to one's family and to one's country, end of quote. Greeks had a similar word, and in Acts 17.23, Paul used it to commend the Athenians. The verb he employed is a form of Eusebio, and the concordance defines that as follows, quote, to act reverently towards God, one's country, magistrates, relations, and to all to whom dutiful regard or reverence is due, end of quote. Now, what should impress us about classical piety is its comprehensive nature. It didn't withdraw from the world. It didn't divide it up into religious and secular categories. The world was a cosmos, a sacred order, and it was filled with other beings, some of whom were people, others were gods, and you owed them. You owed them things. And piety paid its debts. I know piety is not what comes to mind when we think of Rome. Instead, we think of a litany of crime. A gap separated Rome's ideals from its practices. But many Romans admitted that. It was the very reason Virgil and others wanted the old piety back. You could say that they wanted, quote, to make Rome great again or pious again. In retrospect, we know that they failed, but that failure contributed mightily to the success of Christian piety, and that would come later. But here is the irony that I'd like us to consider. The piety of those early Christians looked more like the piety of Aeneas than what passes for it today. And what follows, like Virgil, I intend to use Aeneas to get our old piety back. There's disagreement about whether or not Christians should do something like this, and it goes a long way back. Tertullian summed it up with the quip, quote, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem, end of quote. Augustine thought a lot. And he encouraged us to plunder pagan thinking in the same way that the Israelites plundered Egypt on their way out of town. Now, I know he was probably just thinking about Platonism, but stick with me. I'm with him. Let's plunder Egyptian libraries, not burn them. We see precedent in scripture. Speaking of Athens, Paul employed the technique at Mars Hill when he debated Stoic and Epicurean philosophers there. And missionaries ever since have been on the lookout for what C.S. Lewis called good dreams in order to show how the gospel can make good dreams come true. So here's the method to my madness. The Aeneid and the Bible will be my dousing rods. I'm from Western Pennsylvania, so that's why I know what a dousing rod is. Dousing rods are. Where they seem to cross, where they seem to say something similar, I'll stop to, and consider what that may mean for Christian piety. It may sound like I'm superimposing Virgil onto the Bible, but my purpose is just the opposite of that. I hope to show you how our modern way of looking at the Bible actually screens out what early Christians took for granted. So let's begin with mission statements. Aeneas had one. His story begins at sea in Midiares. The Trojan fleet is caught in a storm that has been stirred up by Troy's old nemesis, Juno. After, a ne after Neptune comes to the rescue, Aeneas anchors off the coast of Libya, not far from Carthage. When he comes ashore, his mother, the goddess Venus, imagine that, imagine Venus is your mother, appears to him disguised as a huntress. Ironically, she's the one who asks, who are you? Here is his reply. 
I am Aeneas, duty-bound, Pius. I carry aboard my ships the gods of house and home. We seized from enemy hands. My fame goes past the skies. I seek my homeland, Italy, born as I am from the highest Jove." End of quote. This is not your typical mission statement. It could only belong to the founder of a great house, and Aeneas is that. But he didn't give it to himself. This wasn't like a focus group thing, you know. Like, it's not like he read Stephen Covey's Seven Habits or something. You know? It was given to him. It was impressed upon him during the sack of Troy. First, his mother Venus appeared to him in all of her glory to tear him away from the fighting so that he could save his family. Then later, after he's been separated from his wife in the confusion, he goes back into the burning city to find her. But instead of finding her, her ghost finds him. And after seeing his tears for her, this is what she says, quote, my dear husband, why so eager to give yourself to such mad flights of grief? It's not without the will of the gods that these things have come to pass. But the gods forbid you to take Creusa with you. The king of lofty Olympus won't allow it. A long exile is your fate. The vast plains of the seas are yours to plow until you reach Hesperian land where Lydian Tiber flows. There, great joy and a kingdom are yours to claim and a queen to make your wife. Now, I hope this reminds you of something similar in the Bible. This time, the speaker is not a ghost. It's the one true God, and he's addressing a man named Abram. Here it is. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Both Aeneas and Abram leave the old world behind. Both are headed to a promised land, and both will be remembered. But these are not the only things that they have in common. In both stories, there is a child of promise. When Aeneas came home to save his family, he found his father resolute to stay. Because he is unwilling to leave him behind, Aeneas prepares to return to the fighting. But then his wife bars his way with their son. Then the following, quote, So Creusa cries, her wails of anguish echoing through the house, when out of the blue an omen strikes, a marvel. Now as we, beheld, as we held our son between our hands and both our grieving faces, a tongue of fire, watch, flares up from the crown of Ilius's head, a subtle flame licking his downy hair, feeding around the boy's brow. And though it never harmed him, panic, we rushed to shake the flame from his curls and smother the holy fire. But Father Anchises lifts his eyes to the stars in joy and stretching his hands towards the sky, sings out, Almighty Jove! If any prayer can persuade you now, look down on us, that's all I ask. If our devotion has earned it, grant us another omen. Father, seal this first clear sign. No sooner said than an instant peal of thunder crashes on the left, and down from the sky a shooting star comes gliding, trailing a flaming torch to irradiate the night. 
at last Anchises is ready to go. And Aeneas says to him, so come, dear father, climb up on my shoulders. I will carry you on my back. This labor of love will never wear me down. The power of the story is undeniable. Must we renounce it? Not even Augustine denounced the image of Aeneas with Anchises on his back. And we don't have to either if we receive it as a good dream. Now let's return to Abram's story. He set out for a promised land too, but without a son to lead. But after years of wandering, he wonders what it's all for. And then this, this happens. Quote, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heavens and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Then Abram was given a sign. The Lord said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, and on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. The sign was the cut that binds, the oath sealed in blood, covenant that promised death to covenant breakers. Like Aeneas, Abram is now duty bound and so are his heirs. Circumcision will be the sign of their binding duty repeated over the generations, binding the sons of Abram to Abram's God. And in days to come, when his heirs ask, who are you? God will invariably reply, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Returning to my dousing rods. Here is another place where the stories cross. In both of them, the promised land is won by a pious war. That a war could be pious is incomprehensible to modern people. And for many modern readers, the best part of the Aeneid is the first half. But for Romans, it may have been the other way around. Everything builds to a fight. And that's because war is merely, uh, this war is merely a prelude of coming attractions. His, his parents reveal that. First, to prepare her son for the fight, Venus plies her womanly wiles to persuade Vulcan to make Aeneas a suit of armor. And the most important thing he makes is a shield, prophetically emblazoned with the story of Aeneas's ever victorious children in years to come. Here's Virgil again. Quote, such vistas the god of fire forged across the shield that Venus gives her son. He fills with wonder. He knows nothing of these events, but takes delight in their likeness, lifting onto his shoulders now the fame and fate of all his children's children. Did you notice the subtle shift in the burden of duty here? Having set his father down, Aeneas now takes up the responsibility of waging war for his children's children. 
although we can dismiss this cynically. Romans justify their conquests as the uh, progress of the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Vir Virgil has Father Anchises give them their charge from Elysium. Quote, but you, Roman, remember, rule with all your power the peoples of the earth. These will be your arts to put your stamp on the works and ways of peace, to spare the defeated, break the proud in war. Now it is time for my dousing rods uh, to show where the stories come into conflict. It was inevitable, re really. Augustine began his defense of the city of God by quoting the very words of Anchises. He rejected the piety of the Pax Romana, instead insisting that Rome was founded on fratricide. And Rom Romulus should get the credit, a man like Cain who killed his bro own brother to build a city, not Aeneas. Augustine said that in the fifth century. But the old piety was more abundant in the first. The civil strife that brought the Caesars to power had cut the thread of piety that had held the Roman way of life together. The Aeneid was an attempt to bring it back, but without the Republican connotations. Intellectuals like Tacitus and Lucan wanted none of it. Their model was the old model, and it was Cincinnatus, a man that had resigned his dictatorship following a military crisis so that he could return to the farm. Rome was a long way from that. But in the East, the house of Abraham looked like it had failed to live up to its promise. It never fully occupied its land, and its most successful dynasty saw its northern territory peel away after only two generations. Then one empire after another swept over it, and by the first century, it was subject to the heirs of Aeneas, and soon its temple would be destroyed by them. In spite of all that, the hope of Abraham's children lived on because they had been promised a deliverer who would restore the kingdom to Israel and not only take back its land, but actually fill the entire world with the kingdom of God. And into this hope stepped Jesus of Nazareth. Some of Abraham's children believed that he was the promised king, but their leaders rejected him and handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. Then there was a sudden joyous turn and Jesus rose from the dead, demonstrating that he was the promised Messiah and heir of the world. Believers were strengthened because the resurrection demonstrated that not even death could stand in the way of the kingdom of God. Then, in the very house of a Roman centurion, another sign followed that indicated that anyone who wanted to join Abraham's household would be welcome to so long as he believed in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is the point in the story that the Apostle Paul appeared. He was a man between two peoples, and he was uniquely equipped to help people emigrate he was a Roman citizen, but he was also a Jew. And here's a snippet from his letter to the Romans at Ephesus. Quote, remember that at one time you Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near. And then uh, you are no, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God." End quote. This didn't happen without a fight, though. The kingdom of God waged its own pious war. And at the end of the letter, Paul laid out another set of armor, this one forged by another God, and that implied that every, every member of the household of God was also a soldier. To anyone on the ground in the first century, these warring pieties looked mismatched. 
but the conflict was asymmetric. Christians fought a guerrilla war, a guerrilla piety, or war of piety, at a level that Romans were not prepared to fight. Paul said we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Today, we don't take this very seriously. But in the first century, the cosmos wasn't empty space like it is for us. Literally every inch of it was full. And, the level and at the level closest to the ground, it was ruled by the prince of the power of the air. The war Christians waged went right over the heads of their human opponents. Rome wasn't the real enemy. It served God's purposes in spite of itself. Nevertheless, the line of conflict did pass right through every heart. And paradoxically, that's why it did come down to a fight over institutions in the end. As C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and earth gets thrown in. The Christian way of war won. And eventually, even the emperor submitted to another piece, the Pax Christi. Here's Prudentius, another poet, but this time from the fifth century. Quote, now the successor of Aeneas in the imperial purple prostrates himself in prayer at the house of Christ and the supreme Lord or doors of the cross. The old Christian piety won and it can win again. I hope to show you how. But before I can get to that, I need to give you a primer on households because as you may have noticed, the old piety was a household piety. Imagine a world without business corporations or social welfare agencies. Where do you suppose people made a living or found help in time of need? In their households. Now let that sink in. A household wasn't a building. It was an authority structure. The building that housed a household was an analogy, not the thing itself. Another thing to remember, a household was an economy. The word economy is derived from two Greek words, oikos meaning house and nomos meaning law, and economy was the law of the house. It directed the mem its members toward a common goal and a common good. Household economies were based on some productive enterprise, usually farming or trade. Sometimes they were subsistence economies. Other times they produced goods for the market. Either way, they were nearly the only industry. They produced food, clothing, and just about everything else. And on top of that, they were social welfare agencies, educating the young and caring for the elderly. Because of these things, a father's authority in antiquity was, un was unquestioned. People depended on him for so much life without him was hard to imagine. He adjudicated household disputes in a world where the police were never a phone call away. He defended and enforced its boundaries. He spoke for the household's interest in public forums. His job was to govern his household and represent it to the larger community. And a father was so important, his untimely death often led to breaking up a household and the distribution of its members to his relations. A father gave a household its vertical dimension. You have to have a hierarchy when so much is at stake. But verticality didn't begin or end with him. Fathers were subject to higher authorities. They were like the centurion that Jesus commended for saying, I am a man under authority. You could say that they were the middle managers of the cosmos. And this brings me to the most important duty of a patriarch. He represented his household in a cosmic hierarchy. Heavenly laws were the basis of the home economy, not his arbitrary dicta. And the welfare of households depended on the blessings of heaven. So a father 
was embedded in a structure he did not invent, and he had responsibilities that he did not choose. Piety consisted in doing his duty. As you know, things at home are different today. Our households are not economies in the old sense of the term. They're more like recreation centers. We've outsourced productive enterprise uh, to the workplace, and when it comes to social welfare, now the young, the old, the sick, and the out of work all depend on social service agencies and helping professionals. The unexpected consequence of this has been a downgrade in a father's authority, unexpected by anyone that isn't a Marxist. Marx saw it coming, and he rejoiced. But in our time, what's a father supposed to be in charge of anyway? What's for dinner? What to watch on television? Figuratively speaking, most households today don't even have second stories. Recreation centers don't need them. We all live in ranch-style housing now. Not coincidentally, this fits in with the way we understand, understand the cosmos today. It doesn't have an upper level. It's all chaos, matter in motion, illusory and temporary order, no points of reference, just empty space. We no longer look up to get our bearings. This is what Nietzsche was getting at when he said God is dead. This is a long way from the world that Abraham and Aeneas lived in. They lived in a Downton Abbey-style cosmos with an upper floor. They disagreed about who was upstairs, but they agreed that there was someone up there. Consequently, they built two-story houses. Bringing this home without a point of reference by which a father and husband can be said to represent a higher authority, households are reduced to being networks of emotionally satisfying relationships. Marriage is now justified solely on that basis. Children have become a lifestyle choice. If you want them, good for you. Some people prefer cats. When it comes to raising children, fatherhood has also been repurposed. Now dad is a buddy or a second mommy, mommy second class. In other words, Heather always has two mommies, even when one of them is her father. And the goal of all this friendship and nurture is the happiness of the child, as in I just want him, her, it, whatever to be happy. And we're not talking about happiness according to Aristotle here. This comes from, uh, straight from Oprah Winfrey. It's hard to think of duty in terms of emotionally satisfying relationships. Duty impresses a structured hierarchy onto our lives. Duty never says, you be you, or go ahead and do what makes you happy. Duty says, this is who you are. Do what is required. Some people think the changes are all for the better that old-fashioned households have been replaced by more capacious modern institutions, which give us room for personal freedom. The people that think this way say that Christianity must adapt or die. There are two problems with that. First, the freedom these people celebrate is an illusion. We're more servile than ever because we're more vulnerable than ever. Our institutions are so large and we're so small we're naked before them. We're like little interchangeable cogs and vast machines. And the other problem is that historically, the household with its attendant structure and roles and its duties has been at the very center of the Christian faith. In case you haven't guessed, I think we need to bring the old household piety back in some form if we're going to get the old piety back. This isn't quixotic. I think there are at least two ways to do it. The first is by recovering the productive household. We need to depend on our households again. And the way to do that is by taking back their old functions. 
If we depend on them for more, we will also depend on them to tell us who we are. Duty will come back. I talk about this in my little book, Man of the House. If you'd like some practical suggestions, I think it's available somewhere. Uh, and now for the second way. We need to recover a larger frame of reference to build our houses in. We need to get back to the cosmos, and that's what this book's about. Now, one last time to the dowsing rods. I'm almost done. Here's one more place where the stories cross. Both end with a marriage. A king must have a queen. There's no future without her. Aeneas waged war for a princess, and only when his warfare has ended can he take his throne and reign with her. Abraham's story ends in a remarkably similar way, albeit he's not the one who wages the war for a queen. That comes later. First, there was the dry run in which his heirs failed to institute the kingdom of God on a sliver of real estate in the Middle East. After that, his true heir, the son of David, appears and wins the greatest victory of all, and it's through that victory that he wins a bride. And the bride, uh, and the Bible, I should say, and the Bible ends with their wedding day, and they live happily ever after. Revelations chapter 21. Some people think that we can uh, take a shortcut to get there, though. But theologians tell us that we live in the time of already but not yet. Some heresies deny one side or other of that formula. From the start, Gnosticism downplayed the not yet side. You could say that the, its formula is already and already. And paradoxically, it performs this trick by denying the goodness and meaning of the world as it is now, especially when it comes to our bodies. And that's what we see today particularly in the rejection of the biological basis of the family, transgenderism, transhumanism, trans ad nauseum. Each abstract the mind from the body in the way that C.S. Lewis described in that hideous strength where the National Institutes for Coordinated Experiments preserve the head of their leader in a machine after discarding his body. Within Christianity, the Gnostic impulse seizes upon a few statements by Jesus and Paul about the world to come. A favorite is Matthew 22:30. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. What tends to get downplayed here is that this describes the new creation, not this one. In the meantime, households don't hold anything back. They are the means of our warfare. Allow me to end my politically incorrect little talk with what may be the most politically incorrect thing in the Bible. I'm thinking about the New Testament household codes, naturally. Paul gives Christian households a new and better end. Better, he reveals their true purpose, the one that they've always served without anyone knowing it. Each role in a household serves Christ and his kingdom. The duties of husbands to wives and wives to husbands, of parents to children and children to parents, reinforce the hierarchy of the household and in so doing, reflect the world to come. And at the center of a Christian household and serving it as its nexus is the conjugal union. In both Genesis and Ephesians, we're told that it is one flesh. Paul tells us that this is a mystery, meaning that it hides something even as it reveals something. One flesh begins with a conjugal union. That's why it was once called consummating a marriage. And that is just the beginning. One flesh also refers to the natural issue of that union in children. But it goes beyond that. It's a union of interests, of goods, and a common life. It means that what goes for one goes for the other. 
And Paul tells us that all of this applies to Christ and the church. What belongs to the church belongs to Christ, and what belongs to Christ belongs to the church because they are one flesh. Now here's some good news for Presbyterians. Nothing accounts for this mystery better than covenant theology. And here's why. Because sinners are condemned to die, Christ died for his chosen bride. And because Christ was raised and glorified, the church is raised and glorified too. We call this double imputation. That's a form of a moral accounting. But what it accounts for is the one flesh union of Christ and the church. I hope you see what this implies when it comes to Christian piety. It means that in a real way, the Christian household is the end of the world. It's the sign that reads, this is the way the world will end, not with a bang, not with a whipper, but with wedding bells. Thank you. So as you're talking and, and comparing Aeneas and Abraham and, and recovering the idea of piety, Genesis 14 comes to mind for me. Um, that Abraham is, uh, goes on a rescue mission for a lot with his yeah. whole household. Um, who, he was able to muster 300 men from his household alone. Yeah, he has his own little Navy SEAL force. <laughs> yeah. um, right. Now, it's, it's, it's written in such a way, biblical scholars see that there is there's this common ancient Near Eastern concept of a noble warrior, a Nabu. And the way it is written is identifying Abram as that noble warrior. Um, something that non Israelites, non-believers in one sense would still, yeah, it's, it's a, a piety that the region acknowledges, a bit like the Roman piety acknowledges in this. Um, so it seems to me, you then, you move on and you realize that piety is no longer present. Uh, so in one sense, as a dean of a classical Christian college, it, you're, you're making a very strong case for, for a classical education. Um, can you give us some, some guidance, therefore, and, and sort of think out loud a little bit on the importance of great books and how you came to think through the Aeneid uh, the in, in these terms? Well, I wish I had a classical education, but I didn't. Uh, so I'm uh, coming to, the, to all this late in life or later in life. But... Um, it's, it's interesting how I kind of stumbled into this. Um, I, my training is in uh, philosophy, particularly ethics. Uh, uh, Aristotle has been pretty significant in terms of my, my thinking, my approach. And, and with, with virtue ethics, uh, when, we, when we appropriate virtue ethics today, we individuate it. We, we think of it in terms of like how to get ahead in the world, stuff like that. But uh, virtue ethics was integrated into a, a, a understanding of the common life, you know, the polis. So, you know, as I was thinking through Man of the House, and I was thinking through about the, the religious character of households in the ancient world, and they, they were religious institutions. The household was uh, a part of the cosmos, and, and the father had religious obligations. For him. So as I, as I, since I knew that, I thought, I, I gotta get into this, I gotta think about you know, the origin of piety, I knew about Puce, and so I said, I gotta read, I gotta read the, the Aeneid. <laughs> you know, here I am, I'm like, in, you know, late in life, coming to the Aeneid, I'm like, 
it's like blowing my mind. I'm reading this thing. Well, this is everywhere. This is just completely saturated with this sort of sort of stuff that reminds me of Ephesians and, and Hebrews and Colossians and stuff like that. And I was like, and then I started started seeing these connections. I was like, wow, seated with him in heavenly places. Well, there are the, when Augustus Caesar Augustus uh, put down uh, his rivals and and brought peace to the empire. There was a flurry of uh, sort of a, uh, souvenir making, <laughs> and it's in its pictures. Guess who seated in heavenly places? Caesar Augustus, with the laurel being held over his head by the goddess of the inhabited world. I thought, aha, there's something going on here. So then, I, as I dug into it, I said, I got, I got to see if there are any Christian scholars who are dealing with or under, you know, are, are sort of trying to understand the role of, of uh, piety in the, in the first century as it relates to the church, particularly as it relates to Ephesians and so forth. And the only people who, who, who saw it were the liberals. And of course, they saw it with the intent of trying to deny it. So the best work on this is, is all the liberal stuff. The, the conservatives are completely missing. They, they don't even pay attention to it. It's like you can't find a conservative out there who even knows it exists. You know, this, all, this huge thing. And the liberals only, they, the, the liberals say it's huge. And that's why we need to kill it. <laughs> they want to get rid of it. But uh, so if you just read the liberal stuff and sort of reverse everything, turn everything on its head, like Marx with Hegel. Okay. What's bad is good and good is bad. Okay. Suddenly everything kind of works. And you say, wow. So then I, re so I, I, then I look, at, look at Ephesians and it just, it just it, it sort of emerges to me as a handbook for piety in the empire, guerrilla piety, Christian guerrilla piety. How, how do you go about the challenge of... Um, you take these insights, understand that this is what piety looks like, almost like a mere piety in one sense, one that was sort of common. Yeah. Um, and yeah. how do you... Everybody how, did it. Everybody. Everyone, it was, yes. everybody was everyone could recognize it and, the, yeah. and they recognized the Christians had it. Yeah. They had their own version. Yes. Um, you highlighted the, the remarkable difference between an ancient household and a modern household. Now, recovery of the principles of an ancient household in the 21st century is not a simple no. task. Uh, can you sort of, I'm, I'm sure probably the book is pointing that direction, but give us, how, do you, how do you go about navigating that, uh, avoiding the error of just going, I'm going to be a first century person yeah, now right, in the right, 21st right, century right, and right. really become really strange. Yeah, that's right. right. And, uh, and then, or giving up entirely. How do you navigate that challenge? Yeah, uh, that's, I think, a multi-generation task. I don't think it, anybody can realistically aspire to do that in, in their lifetime. I think that it's something that we've got to make uh, part of our long-term long strategy of, you know, in terms of how do we remain faithful in a, in a, in a culture that uh, is conspired to destroy us. So, you know, if you have that sort of, that long-term sort of thing, and then you have, you know, at, you, you operate at two levels. You've got the big picture, which I was getting at, sort of recovering the big picture. But then at, on the level of the ground, just the little things, there are a lot of encouraging things going on. I think the homeschooling movement is an example. I think classical Christian education is an example. And I think there's a lot of uh, interest from even unbelievers. My, my book, Man of the House, uh, has had uh, some interesting... Uh, it's found its way into some interesting places. Um, and the, 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 the guys who are kind of uh, 
taking a look at it are, are, are I think, uh, they're seeing this as, okay, you know, uh, this is how I can proceed now. I don't know if I'll be able to pull this off, but at least it's worth a try. And, you know, I'll, I'll dedicate myself to, to trying to get this done. You know, and tomorrow uh, at Grace Agenda, I'll talk about my own experience with it. That's my talk. And uh, I, I don't, I've not pulled it off or anything. You know, it's, I, it's partial, partial success, partial failure. But I think the idea is that, you know, if my, my kids, and they do seem to have bought into it, my kids can have it and uh, have a sense of what, uh, how this works and want to pursue it from themselves. And over the generations, we may be able to create. And there are places in which I, I, I see it in, in everything but maybe a name. And we can talk about that maybe at some point. But anyway, I, I, I'm realistic. I'm not uh, at all overly kind of Pollyannish about this or anything. It's not a quick fix. Um, you talk about the importance of the father in the ancient household, clearly very significant. But and perhaps even more dramatic, maybe not, is the difference between a ancient household mother and wife and a suburban Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's huge. Mother. Can, yeah. can you reflect on that a little bit? Yeah, I, I decided to focus on the men because uh, that was where I felt the most sort of, you know, uh, connection, obviously, for obvious reasons. But uh, there's a, a <laughs> I'm glad some circles would, would have taken that as a bad thing. <laughs> but uh, with regard to women uh, in the ancient world, we don't really have an accurate understanding. And, and, and so much of the scholarship today misconstrues things. So if you, if you like, and you read uh, Xenophon and his uh, estate manager, uh, and, you, and you, that's a marvelous uh, platonic dialogue where Socrates, I mean, not Platonic, a Socratic dialogue, uh, where Socrates uh, is interacting with uh, a householder, a guy who's actually success, success, successful at what we're talking about. So it's like a how-to-do-it manual from the 4th century BC. And uh, in many ways, my book is sort of an updating. <laughs> but uh, so, and in there, he talks about his wife. And it's, it's, it's a big part of the dialogue. And... She's definitely not eating bonbons and watching television. <laughs> she's she's uh, very much sort of integral to the whole enterprise. And he tells, and he says this at the very end of his description of his wife. He tells her, he's reporting to Socrates, and this is something that, that was insidious. When I was reading the treatments of Xenophon in this particular dialogue by the liberals, they completely, uh, you know, sort of just overlooked everything about uh, this uh, this dialogue that would make this householder a sympathetic and even uh, virtuous figure. But he says at the very end, he's describing his wife, he says, I told my wife that if we do this well, that she ought not to fear that she will have a lower status than mine in our household. She may find herself receiving more regard. That's the fourth century BC. He recognized the humanity of his wife. In fact, he recognized the humanity of his servants. He, he, uh, in this dialogue, he advocates profit sharing with his slaves. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. If you read this thing, it belies everything you've been told. Okay. Um, last question, because we're running out of time. Christians had this party. So we're trying to recover something that the, the church and Christians have lost. How did we lose it? 
Well, uh, I think there were a couple of revolutions. You know, there was, you know, the modernity uh, turns away from the exter external world. It's subject, it, it turns to the subject, you know, Descartes, and you know, it's a whole story to be told there. Uh, but that would just be a bunch of eggheads, you know, talking about things if it wasn't for the Industrial Revolution. And I don't want you guys to get the wrong idea. I, I think that the Industrial Revolution ha has given us a number of marvelous things. I don't want to lose them. I like air conditioning. I like uh, antibiotics. I hope we can keep them. But I think we're at a, at a point now where, paradoxically, uh, we're on the far side of that, and the information technology has actually a, a created a situation where we could recover some of the best elements of the old household, but in, new, in a new form. So I'm not anti-tech. In fact, you didn't have the household without tech. Uh, what separated householders in the ancient world from hunter-gatherers was technology, the plow, things like that. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, we just have to, we have to get creative. Uh, we have to think about, inter we have to think in terms of inter you know, the generations, not just me and then liquidating everything when I'm dead. We have to think about what do we hand on to our heirs. We've got to think about training our heirs to take over. And we've got to think about how do we relate to people who are outside of our households, you know, because this isn't just about us. You know, how do the households fit into larger communities? Households are part of a polis. The Christian households are part of the church. That's our polis. So uh, there's a lot, a lot to do, a lot to recover. And fortunately, there are parts of the world that have retained certain things. So like I've got a, a church that has a lot of people from places like India and stuff like that, Africa. And uh, I, I find it fascinating to s sort of talk to these folks and see how they have, they never left the pre-modern world behind, and now they're in the post-modern world. And they, 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 so I, I got people in my church who have huge tracts of real estate and farms back in the old country, Ghana and places like that, uh, and, or back in India, and they regularly go back to check in on their stewards. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've got one family in the church, they're the, from the royal family of Malawi, and uh, the bandits. And uh, every Sunday, uh, Albert Banda, the, 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 the patriarch, uh, can't come to church events because he's on the phone with his stewards <laughs> back in Malawi. Okay, we've run out of time. I could uh, ask a lot more questions. Uh, please give another thank you to Chris Wiley.